just a moment, we're going to be reading from the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter five. So uh, if you would locate that, we're going to be following a rather somewhat lengthy passage there. And so I invite you to turn to Mark chapter five. As you're doing so, I want to ask you a few questions. Have you ever been in a situation where you put your trust in someone, depended upon that person, only to have him or her let you down? Truth be told, it might be more realistic to ask you if anyone here has not had an experience like that, right? Or have you ever faced a crisis in which time was of the essence? You urgently needed help, and any delay would be disastrous. You know, if you've lived long enough, and as I look out, I think most of us in this room qualify for that, you probably have had those kind of experiences in your life. But here's the question I want to pose for you today. Have you ever depended upon God and felt like He let you down? All of you done a marvelous job of remaining totally blank on your face. But let's be honest. Haven't there been times in your life where the situation was frighteningly desperate? The time was critical, and you urgently entreated God for help, only for the deadline to pass, for the crisis to become more desperate. The crisis, in fact, goes from being frightening and desperate to hopeless and impossible. I wonder how many times, if we were just really honest about it, how many times in our lives have we felt like or struggled with the apparent failure of God to show up on time with the requested help? Well, this morning we're going to look at an individual who had precisely this experience. So look in chapter 5 of Mark's Gospel. I'll begin reading in verse 21. We'll work our way through this narrative. Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing Jesus, fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. First of all, who is this man by the name of Jairus? What do we know about him? Well, Mark tells us that he was a ruler of one of the synagogues. And that would, of course, mean that this was a rather prestigious, important individual within the Jewish community. Now, would you have expected a man like Jairus to approach Jesus and fall at his feet. Not very likely, was it? You know, Jesus had already had numerous run-ins with the synagogue officials, 
And their attitude towards Jesus was more often one of animosity or hostility. So what was it that brought Jairus to the feet of Jesus? Very simple, very simply, a crisis that was so desperate and so severe that it overrode all other considerations. Pride, social prestige, animosity meant nothing to this father whose daughter was so critically ill. And look at verse 23. Mark tells us that Jairus implored Jesus earnestly. In the original language, the tense of the verb that is used there is one that indicates continuous, continuous action. In other words, Jairus did not just come to Jesus and simply, would you please come to my house and heal my daughter? Jairus <clears throat> repeatedly, <clears throat> excuse me, repeatedly implored Jesus, pleaded with Jesus to come quickly to heal his daughter. Over and over again, he made that request. And you and I need to appreciate just how desperate the situation was. Luke, in his account, informs us that the daughter was 12 years old, but significantly, Luke also reports that this was the only daughter of Jairus. Very likely, she was the darling of his life. But notice the urgency of the situation. This girl was literally at death's door. In fact, Jairus could not be certain that she had survived in the amount of time it took him to locate Jesus. She may have already passed through the portal of death. Time was absolutely of the essence. No delay could be permitted. If he were going to help, Jesus must respond immediately. Now, right here, let's kind of step aside. I think many of us probably can identify with that distraught father, can't we? We, like Jairus, have known the taste of adrenaline in our mouth as we faced a crisis in our lives that literally scared us to death. You know what I'm talking about here? You know that phone call in the middle of the night with news that sets our hearts to pounding and our stomachs to churning? Or perhaps standing beside the hospital bed as a concerned visual turns into panic as a loved one plummets towards death? Or perhaps we have experienced the culmination of years of anxiety and heartache in which at last events converged to bring matters to a climax. For many of us, the experience of Jairus has been or is now our experience. Our need is frightening and desperate. The crisis is urgent. We need help, and we need it now. So what was the response of Jesus to this urgent request expressed by Jairus. Look at verse 24. Jesus went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So Jesus complied with the repeated pleas 
of Jairus. But notice there were some rather annoying hindrances to Jesus' response. First of all, there was the crowd. The text from which I'm reading says that the crowd was pressing in on Jesus. The King James says they thronged him. The original language could very accurately and literally be translated, the crowd was crushing in on Jesus. Have you ever had the experience of going to uh, a stadi- an athletic event at a stadium perhaps, or maybe a con- music uh, event at a concert hall or something like that? And when it's concluded, as you attempt to exit the place, it seems that every person in that venue has decided to exit the same gate at the same time. You ever had that experience? And you find yourself literally being squashed by a crowd of humanity. You know, you find yourself, people are just pressed up against you, and you can't walk at your normal pace. You can just barely shuffle along with a crowd, that mass of humanity. That is precisely the scene Mark describes. That's the verb he uses. The crowd was crushing in on Jesus. So what do you think Jairus was doing in the midst of that crowd? What would you have been doing in the midst of that crowd? Well, I'm confident that Jairus was doing the best he could to make a pathway through the crowd. In fact, if I were honest, if it were I, I think I might be throwing a few elbows and things, trying to get a path through that crowd. I'm sure that Jairus was shouting, please get out of the way. My daughter is dying. I have to get Jesus to my daughter. I have no time to, to spare. Get out of the way. But right here, you have to kind of hold your place with your finger because there's an interruption. The crowd was not the only hindrance to Jesus' response to Jairus. Look down at verse 25. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Hendricks number two was a woman with a severe medical problem. Mark tells us she had suffered from this affliction for 12 years. And if that affliction involved uterine bleeding, then you probably are aware that she would have been considered ceremonially unclean according to the Jewish law, or Jewish ceremonial law, and she would have been excluded from society, which, of course, would only have served to compound her sense of desperation, her anguish, her sense of affliction. And as if that were not enough, Mark tells us something else. He tells her that this poor lady had, I don't know if this is an accurate way to describe it, but kind of been taken to the cleaners by the physicians 
For 12 years, she'd been going to physicians, and Mark says she'd spent everything she had and had not been helped at all, but in fact had grown worse. And, you know, I don't want to make more of this than is, necess than is appropriate, but um, I've always been a, kind of fascinated by the fact that Dr. Luke, in his account of this event, omits that little piece of information about the physicians not being helpful at all to uh, this poor lady. But this was a woman with a determined resolution. She was determined to touch Jesus. And once she achieved her goal, she received the desired healing. But then Jesus did something totally unexpected. He stopped dead in his tra tracks and asked a puzzling question. Look at verse 30. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Which I got to tell you, his disciples thought was one of the dumbest questions they had ever heard. Look at verse 31. His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? I mean, obviously, Jesus is being squashed by a crowd of people. He's being jostled and bumped and touched by all manner of people constantly. And the disciples say, What do you mean? Who touched you? Everybody's touching you. Of course, Jesus realized that he'd been touched by someone different from everyone else. And so Jesus was not going to budge until he had an answer to his question. <clears throat> Verse 32. And Jesus looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So the woman identified herself to Jesus and told him the whole truth. Now, can you put yourself in the position of that lady that day? I mean, can you imagine how embarrassing that must have been? I am confident the last thing on earth she ever wanted to do was explain her medical uh, problems in front of a crowd of strangers. But you know, here's what really fascinates me. Mark says she told Jesus the whole truth. What do you think constituted the whole truth? Do you think this lady recounted 12 years of her medical history to Jesus there? I mean, it starts back 12 years. 12 years ago, I went to Dr. Hezekiah. He prescribed this treatment, didn't work. Then I went to Dr. and on and on and on. Do you think that was the whole truth? I really don't know, but I wonder. By the way, just as a little footnote here, what was it that actually healed, was the source of this woman's healing? Was it the fact that she touched the garments of Jesus? The touch of the garments, is that what healed her? No. Look at verse 30, 34. Jesus indicated that it was the woman's faith in God that brought the desired healing. But who has been conspicuously absent from the narrative 
for a while. What do you think Jairus was doing while this woman explained the whole truth to Jesus? I don't know, but in my imagination, I can see that father probably, he probably couldn't contain himself. I mean, just moving, looking at his watch, pulling his hair out in desperation. I wouldn't doubt that he has grabbed hold of the robes of Jesus and has begun to try to drag Jesus and saying something like, Jesus, I told you my daughter is dying. We don't have time to stand here listening to this woman. Let's go. Doing his, I mean, Jairus, I'm sure, is beside himself. And at that point, Mark tells us a devastating report was received. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Now, I want you to appreciate that Mark's description of this is absolutely riveting. Notice what he says. While Jesus was still speaking. While Jesus is standing there speaking to the lady who has been healed, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while that pronouncement of healing is still rolling off the lips of Jesus, the report of the death of his daughter enters the ears of Jairus. Jesus is still speaking. In the midst of talking to the woman, they tell Jairus, your daughter is dead. Can you feel what that distraught father must have felt so long ago? The blow to the solar plexus, your knees turn to water, your world is plunged into darkness, and you realize the crisis has just gone from desperate and frightening to hopeless and impossible. What was Jairus to do? Well, he is advised, why bother the teacher? Why trouble the teacher anymore? Indeed, what was the use? His daughter's dead. Came to Jesus, asked Jesus to heal his daughter. Jesus apparently complied with the request, and now... The word has come, it's too late, your daughter's dead. Can you imagine that Jairus must have felt like, Jesus let me down. I came to him, I pleaded repeatedly with him, with him to come and heal my daughter, and he said he would. And now he has stood here talking to a woman who is perfectly well, so long, that it is now hopeless and impossible. I can imagine that Jairus thought, Jesus failed me. So I ask you again, have you ever had an experience similar to that of Jairus? Has it ever seemed to you that God has let you down? Has your world been plunged into the darkness of despair and hopelessness because the expected answer, the expected help from God 
did not arrive in time. How did you respond? How did Jairus respond? Listen to what Jesus said to this distraught father. Look at verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid, only believe. Actually, Jesus issued two commands to Jairus. The first one was, according to the text I just read you, don't be afraid. But the original language could very literally be translated, stop fearing. The tense of the command in the original language indicates an action, stopping an action that's already taking place. So stop fearing, Jairus. Second command, only believe. Only believe. And again, the tense in the original language of the command indicates continuing an action. So believe and keep on believing. But here's something I want to point out to you that I think is pretty significant. The verb which we translate believe comes from the same root word in the original language as the word we translate faith. Now, obviously this is not significant, the, the Greek here, but just so you'll know what I'm talking about, the Greek verb for faith, for believe is pistuo. The Greek noun that we translate faith is pistis. Pistuo, pistis, same root word for both of them. Now here's the significance of all of that. The noun that we translate faith could be very accurately and literally translated trust. Trust. In fact, I wish we had done that more often in our English Bibles for a number of reasons. But nevertheless, that means the command Jesus issued to Jesus could be translated this way. Trust and keep on trusting. Trust and keep on trusting. Jesus knew the pain and turmoil of Jairus, and he gave him the only counsel that would really bring any help. Jairus, do not give in to the fear and despair that threaten to suffocate you. Trust me and keep on trusting me, no matter how hopeless or impossible the situation may be. And then, instead of extending his condolences to the bereaved father, Jesus blessed him with his company to his home. Look at verse 37. And Jesus allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue, synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. Jesus said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, 
and immediately they were completely astounded. Now, the question I have for you this morning is, what if Jairus had taken the advice he received earlier? Why trouble the teacher anymore? What if Jairus had concluded that Jesus really had failed him, and he turned around and walked off in despair and disillusionment? Well, at a bare minimum, his daughter would not have received the healing touch of Jesus, right? But Jairus chose instead to implement the counsel of Jesus. He chose to trust Jesus and to keep on trusting Jesus and the provision that he trusted Jesus would supply for the crisis in his life. So let me ask you, what does this experience in the life of Jairus have to say to to you and to me this morning. Well, first of all, this incident teaches us that Jesus responds to each one of us and our needs individually according to his sovereign wisdom and love. Now, I think that's an important lesson because, let's be honest, don't we often attempt to reduce God's ways of working in our lives to formulas and universal principles. You know, if you do this, God's always going to do that. And we kind of we like that sense of security um, that we, we kind of think we know we've figured out how God's going to respond in different situations, perhaps. Reducing God's ways of working to formulas or universal principles. But think about it. The woman with the hemorrhage came to Jesus and requested help, and her need was met immediately. Couldn't Jesus have done the same thing for Jairus and his need? Couldn't he have, couldn't he have treated Jairus the same way he treated the royal official from Capernaum who traveled to Cana to find Jesus and say, come back to my home because my son is dying and I want you to heal my son. Do you remember what Jesus did for that man? Go home. Your son lives. Healed his son, met the need immediately. Couldn't he have done that for Jairus? But not only was the need of Jairus not met immediately, that need was not answered until Jairus had experienced the most painful and devastating event a parent can ever encounter, the death of a beloved child. So I ask you, why did Jesus respond differently to Jairus? Why? Oh, man, I was really hoping that you would be able to supply an answer. Because I confess, I don't know why either. Why did he act one way for Jairus, one way for the woman with a hemorrhage? I don't know. But I am confident of this. Jesus always acted for the ultimate good of the largest number of people 
and the greatest glory for his Father. And may I suggest to you that Jesus still responds today to our needs individually according to his sovereign wisdom and love. Secondly, we learn from the experience of Jairus that Jesus frequently has a different time schedule than you or I. Now, of course, that's not profound. You already knew that. But the truth of the matter is the most hopeless situation, the most critical and desperate crisis is not a cause of alarm for Jesus. Never shows up late, although certainly from your perspective and mine, it often seems like Jesus is too late, doesn't it? But he's always on time, and then we know what that means is. That means that you and I need to trust not only Jesus, we need to learn to trust his timing, his timing. Which, I'll be honest with you, that's often pretty difficult to do. But it's part of trusting our Lord. The third thing the experience of Jairus teaches us is, I can think, a very important lesson. Because here's the point. Will Jesus always accompany us home and bring healing and restore life? Is he always going to do that? Are we assured that he'll always go home with us and bring healing and rest restoration of life? The answer, of course, is no. Sometimes in his wisdom and in his love, he denies our most fervent and desperate request. He says no to our prayers. And if that is so, then what should be our response? Stop fearing. Only trust and keep on trusting. And every time... I read that, I'm reminded of the words that Jesus spoke to another bereaved individual. You remember Martha standing outside the tomb of her deceased brother, Lazarus? A brother who had been ill, and Martha had sent word to Jesus requesting that he come and heal her brother, and Jesus did not show up until Four days too late. Four days too late. Her brother's been in the tomb for four days when Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus say to that distraught, grieving sister? Did I not say to you that if you believe, in other words, if you trust, you will Note that. You will know ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you trust, you will see the glory of God. So today, I suggest that the message of Jesus to you and to me is the same as it was to Jairus. I know how badly you're hurting and how much you are fearing right now. I know how hopeless and impossible the situation may seem at this moment, but my dear child, stop fearing, only 
trust me and keep on trusting. Because if you trust me, you will see the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know about any other person in this room, but it is exceedingly important for me to know that in the midst of crises that's frightening, that I don't know what to do, that your word today is stop fearing and to trust you and to keep on trusting no matter what happens. And thank you for your sure promise that if we trust you, we will see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.